0: So take your Bibles, would you? Open them to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, what do you say we make a return trip to the buffet this morning? You recall last week, uh, we feasted on the buffet of Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And though we couldn't uh, chew up every morsel in here, We did select uh, a specific aspect to really meditate on and just enjoy. Uh, If you weren't here last week, here is a recap of that. We looked at God's work for us, Uh, the timeline of it, its past, its present, its future, and we saw especially that this would be done in Christ in the coming ages in which he would showcase all that he's done for us in past, present, future, it would It would be a a continuing showcase in the coming ages, his work for us in Christ. So that's kind of our review. I want to go back to the buffet today for dessert. Will you join me? Because I think there's an interesting verse that that culminates this paragraph, and it is just delightful, delicious. It's it's invigorating. So your Bibles are there, Ephesians 2.10. I want us to see this morning... Uh, our work for God. Remember 1 through 9, even into part of 10, it's God's work for us. And then he kind of concludes with this singular phrase about our work for God. It's kind of like dessert. It's the topping. So we're going to look at that this morning. So let's begin just by reading together Ephesians 2.10, a singular verse this morning we're going to kind of unpack. My goal is to read this with you, go to our lab and kind of unpack it for you both grammatically, applicationally, textually, Just to glean as much as we can from this verse. And then I want to spend a little bit of time just making some uh, very uh, simple, but I think relevant applications to our faith family. All right? So Ephesians 2.10, will you read it with me, church? Here's the verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, with your Bible there, or perhaps your journal, and you have your pen, let's just take a few notes here. Let's understand as much as we can in our time allotted about this verse, and enjoy it. First of all, notice that in this verse, uh, it begins with a "for," and so, in some sense, he's looking backwards here. In this first statement, which is "for we are his workmanship," he's actually answering a question or affirming something he said before. "For" is an explanatory word. And he's saying that that this is why our works are not part of the equation. Remember in verses eight and nine especially, he said, hey, we don't boast, we don't brag, we don't bring works to the table. It's not of our doing. Those are all phrases mentioned. Why does he say those phrases in eight and nine? Here's the answer. Say it with me, church. For we are his workmanship. And notice the word or pronoun his, his. In the word order, this is near the beginning of the sentence, and in the Greek language, often you would provide emphasis through word order. And so the the real emphasis here is that we're not a work of our own. We're not a result of our effort. We are His workmanship. That's why we don't boast or brag or bring works to the table or necessarily think our effort earned anything because we're His workmanship. And the word workmanship there is a very interesting word. It's the word from which we get our word poem. Uh, In most literal sense, it would be the word poeme, And so we derive our English word poem from this Greek word. You could also use the word masterpiece. And here's what Paul is saying, that we are God's masterpiece. And this is what one through nine has really described for us, isn't it? That we were dead. But God brought us to life. He raised us up. He seated us with Christ. He's done all this even while we were dead. And so truly, we are God's workmanship. We're his masterpiece. We're his poem. That's what God is writing. And if you were to think about the meaning of this word in light of verse 7, which he says he's going to showcase us or demonstrate us to the the heavenly bodies and to everyone in the coming ages, you would see that, that God's writing this poem for all to be read over and over again that that really resounds and and demonstrates his grace and his work. This is what God has done. Notice where he's done this and how he's done this. It's the next part of this first phrase. He says this, this masterpiece, he's created us in Christ Jesus. Here's probably the eighth or ninth in Christ phrase in Ephesians. It's the third usage of this word just in the last four or five verses. And what's being said here clearly is this, God has done his work in us and for us through and in Christ. And again, verses one through nine, just spell this out so clearly. I'm intrigued by the word created though. Well, you notice this with me a little bit because... In some sense, he's kind of repeating himself. Wouldn't you agree with the word for? Like, hey, we're gods. He's been talking about this for nine verses. He's done all the work. He's provided all the salvation. It's his grace. It's his gift. We don't earn it or or leverage for it, negotiate, bargain. We don't steal it. We don't grab it. It's God's gift. And yet he uses a different word here as saying that this gift, this masterpiece, he's created us in Christ. So so why a different word here? Because in verse 7, he says we were a save to demonstrate in Christ. He would one day demonstrate in Christ what he's done. Now he says created. Here's what I think is going on. I I find this very intriguing. The word demonstrate in verse seven, which is what God will do in the coming ages in Christ, is a word that really points to the future, isn't it? Here's what God's going to do in the coming ages, in the succeeding, uh, we'll use the word eternities, just God will continuously showcase his grace. It's futuristic. This word, and I'll draw an arrow here, Kind of points backwards. Like, by the way, he not only will finish the work, he is the one who began the work. He created us in Christ. So he's going to showcase us in Christ forever. But by the way, he's the one who started the work to begin with. So it makes me think of some, some titles that were given to God, to Christ, when in the New Testament we read that he is the Alpha And Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And what is the point of that kind of poetic language? That the process of salvation, when it comes to God, He owns every bit of it, start to finish. The Bible says He's the beginning and the end, He's the first and the last. So it not only describes God's eternality, in this case, He's saying, man, when it comes to salvation, God owns every bit of the process, start to finish, first to last. Beginning to end, he created you, he'll demonstrate you. Now I love the way Paul here is just making sure every bit of our praise is vertical to God. Now, here's why this is good news. I'm gonna pause here and just to make sure again this week. I exhort every single person to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. You know why? Because when you hear this, like, well, me, my works don't matter. I don't bring anything to the table. You mean it's not a matter of me negotiating or bargaining with God? No, it's not at all. It's a gift. And this is the best news you could receive because you couldn't bargain with God anyway. Do you realize we're unstrapping the burden from you? We're unvelcrowing the weight of moralism, relativism, humanism, Good works we're unstrapping all of that and saying God has done all that's necessary in his son Christ for you to be made alive and reconciled. So receive the gift and relax. <laughs> Man, I'm so thankful for what God has done in Christ from start to finish for those who believe. Let's just kind of attach a word to this first part of verse 10. Here's the word I'd want you to attach to it. It's the word, Ownership. In fact, in your journal, in your Bible, perhaps out by this verse, just write this word ownership, because in some sense, the very beginning of verse 10 is a summary statement that he of what he's been talking about in verses 1 to 9. All that God has done, past, present, and future, everything that God has done in Christ for those who are once dead rebels and are now righteous living saints guess what? It's, it's God's from start to finish. You are his masterpiece. It's, he, He's the owner. And so we say here at First Family, without any shame or any apology, what Psalm 2 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen, church? There's only one who is worthy to open the scrolls, break the seals. It's the one who died in your place. He alone is worthy so let's make sure in our language and our posture, we continually represent this testimony. Salvation is wholly and solely God's work from start to finish, A to Z, beginning to end, every bit of it. So we'll just jot down ownership here in my beautiful handwriting. I heard this week someone made a comment to my wife about my handwriting, asking if it's that way all the time. And she said, typically worse. Worse. So count your blessings, people. I'm doing a pretty good job here. Let's notice the last phrase of verse 10, can we? Because there's a reason that God has done all of this amazing work in his son for formerly dead rebels who are now living righteous saints. There's a reason God has done that. And it begins the last half of this verse. It also begins with four. And it's for good works. Underline that doubly because really, The rest of the verse just modifies those two words. We were created in Christ. God did what he did for us through his son for good works. Or the word there could be unto good works. And let me just comment here briefly. This is a little, it's not ambiguous, but there's more of an implication here than there is an explicit statement. Um, and you need to trust me, I'm going to take you kind of deep here for a moment. The, the grammatical structure of this phrase, for good works, and the idea of using the word unto, it's, it's indicating not just the end of an equation. So I'm not denying that we were saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. I'm not denying that, but I, I don't want us to think it's just like, oh, that's just one thing that happens, you know, kind of take it or leave it. The, the real sense of this phrase and the one before it created in Christ Jesus is, as one commentator says, it's an inseparable resulting condition. In other words, there there really isn't in God's mind the possibility or situation that he would create in someone new life. He would raise them up, seat them with his son, and then not have them really do good works. That's not a thought in God's mind. So don't read this as if it's like, well, that's just an option for me. No, in, in the grammatical structure, Paul is communicating us by the Holy Spirit. This is, uh, they go together. God's work and good works go together. Good works don't purchase it or buy it or earn it at all, but they they are the result of it. And I think that leans into another word I want to look at for a minute. It's this word should. We hear that word and we think about it in terms of the American language like this, I should go to the grocery store. So your mind thinks automatically, I don't have to go to the grocery store. It's probably better if I did go to the grocery store, but I've got options, tomorrow works as well. That's not the way should is here, okay? Don't read American um, meanings into some of these words, even though that's kinda how we do it. Let me explain to you grammatically again what's, what's going on here. This is functionally an imperative. Now, I say it that way because technically the first imperative comes next week. Parker's going to speak on verses 11 through 18. He'll actually bring us the first command in the book. However, though this is not a technical imperative, it's technically what they call a subjunctive. There are times in the New Testament when you have a first person plural in the subjunctive, it serves as a functional imperative. Notice this word we. We. First person plural. So Paul is saying, hey guys, good works are the inseparable condition of God's people. And by the way, get to work, no pun intended. Get to work with them, right? He's not giving you options. He's not saying here's some choices. He's saying this is the result of God's work in your life. And notice what he says about these works. God prepared them beforehand. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it really leans in again, watch this, to who owns the whole process. You see, often good works surprise us. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're living your life and you hear about a need and you're like, oh, I should help there. And so you have maybe a week, maybe an hour, maybe a day, and you decide, can I uh, invest some money? Could I give some time? Could I bring some energy? And You make those decisions based on the things that come across your schedule and your radar. You know, none of those opportunities ever surprise God. God's not like, man, I got to adjust the divine calendar now to fit that in. In fact, every single opportunity, and can I just change that word? Every single obligation for good work, because that's really the hint here. That's the strong language. God's prepared them in advance. It's an inseparable condition, and we should walk in them. Every one of them, God ordained and prepared to cross your path. He's intending to intersect your new spiritual life with incredible opportunities and obligations to showcase that work. That's called good works. In fact, let's go back to our verse here. You got the word obligation in mind? Let's write that down, can we? Obligation. And notice that these are things God prepares, uh, these good works, and we're to walk in them. And before I just say a word about the word walk, let me give you a definition of good works. As we're talking a lot about them, we're seeing that this is why God gives new life, or at least one of the reasons. Here's a simple definition. Uh, I would even say it's a homemade definition of good works. This is one I use for myself. It's the things I do that show God's work. That's all good works are, the things I do that show God's work. And I think this brings into to light you know, the whole idea of verses 1 to 9, that we're not just producing something on our own. We're not trying to impress people. We're just living in the overflow of, of what God has done in us and for us. And so that is good works, the things I do that show God's work. It's, it's kind of like fruit in the Bible. When you see the word fruit, Fruit is simply showing on the outside what God is doing on the inside. Works are, are similar. They're just the things I do that, that show God's work. And the Bible here says that we should walk in them. Now, I want to draw a little arrow here, and I want you to see something here. I think I've got plenty of room here. Draw a couple of backwards bookends, can I? Um, this word walk was first mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, at least within this paragraph. It's now mentioned as one of the final words in chapter 2, verse 10, which forms for us what we officially would call an inclusio. Okay, kind of a $10 word there. It just means that Paul's using a word here to, to kind of book in, to kind of bracket a thought that this is what you were doing, but because of what God has done, this is now what you are to be doing. Remember in 2.1, we were walking as dead rebels in our sin. We were walking according to the prince of the power of air. In other words, all of our actions, it was as if a dead man was rebelling against God. That's how we walked. But when God stepped in and through Christ made us alive together, raised us up and seated us with Christ... We're now walking in a different fashion. We're walking as living, righteous saints with good works, not dead works. This is all because of God's work. So I think it's very intriguing that he would use the word walk in this fashion and kind of showcase for us again. Yeah, here's what your life was. Here's what your life is. And it's all because of God. So again, ownership, obligation, All of this is helping to see something very plainly here this morning. Just a simple take-home truth that our new life in Christ isn't a result of our works. Can we pause there and just say that dramatically, dogmatically, emphatically? Can we agree together, church? Say it with me. Your new life in Christ isn't a result of your works. Now, will you say that like you mean it with me? This is good doctrine that you, I'm sure, believe, but can we just rehearse it in a, in a worksism culture? In a let's make sure we're, we're trying to be better and better. When God says, I want to make you different. When all of us are trying to band-aid ourselves to death and duct tape good works so that we look impressive, God's trying to change the inner nature. Like in the middle of that culture, can you say this with me? Your new life in Christ isn't a result of your works. Hallelujah. I think that's freeing. But here's the truth that often we leave behind. Your works are the result of your new life in Christ. That is your obligation. It's the inseparable condition of new life in Christ that his children will walk in a different way than they used to walk. So together, here's a simple sentence that would kind of encapsulate verse 10. And I think in a lot of ways, it takes the whole buffet of one through 10. Will you say it with me one more time? Your new life in Christ isn't a result of your works, but works are the result of your new life in Christ. Now remember, the gift of God's grace comes without works, and yet it never leaves us without work. And why is this the case? Because we are owned by God and obligated to God. Now, with that truth kind of under our feet, let me take a few minutes and provide some windows for you through which you can see what good works look like on a day-to-day, kind of a week-to-week basis. In other words, what would it look like for someone to really be walking in good works and living in this obligated but joyful fashion. I'll share some with you. I want to stress to you, these aren't the only ways to be involved in good works. I want you to hear me with both ears fully attuned. Because good works really live on a spectrum. Okay, I'm looking for nods here, looking for some agreement. Okay, And it's a massively wide spectrum. Some works are very visible. Some good works aren't very visible. But they're both good works. Wouldn't you agree? Some good works are very routine and planned. We know about them. We're disciplined in them. Some good works are very spontaneous, but they're both good works. And so there's all different types of good works. Um, uh, It's a broad spectrum. I'm just going to mention some that I've seen lately within our faith. There's actually good works that we do in our community, and there's ones we do in the church. Those are all good works, right? So I'm just going to kind of mention a few that I've seen lately to give glory to God for his work in your life because we've seen the good works from your life. For instance, this past week, I was doing some reviewing in here on some things. I walked back through this back room where they're doing some work and I saw Terry Anderson back there during the day when he probably could have been doing what he does with realty, but he's taping and mudding a lot of sheetrock back there, saving us, having to pay for it to be done, and doing a great job. He's a good taping and mudder. Don't call him and ask him. I mean, that's up to him and you, I guess, right? But there's a lot of walls back there, but he's just gladly, joyfully taping and mudding. I, I like those kind of good works, don't you? That's a, that's a blessing. I, my heart was like, thank you, Terry, just for popping in and helping. Uh, a few Saturdays ago, I was helping my daughter move, her and Matt. <clears throat> and I didn't know who to expect to be there, but I'm like, you know, It's probably some heavy lifting, some things coming around. But man, they had so many people, men and women, helping them that I hardly lifted anything. I was like loving that day, right? I carried a few boxes. I just applauded people, encouraged them. But I love seeing so many from their small group and other folks not in their small group, just helping. And uh, what was so neat to me, in fact, there were some guys who showed up about 12 or 1 and some folks kind of started to rag. i like, hey, way to be on time. The big stuff's done, you know, kind of kidding. But they were having to work earlier. They came, and they kind of relieved us who were early, and they kind of kept the train moving. And just a lot of people in different ways helping. I, I like those kinds of good works, don't you? Um, I was thinking about a few months ago, Carol Ballard, she came down with COVID. And as you know, that's a situation that was difficult because Monty, her husband, is right now... Um, journeying towards his last days, he has ALS. And it's just a, uh, just a beautifully dear couple, and they're just suffering so well, but it's a, a good bit of suffering. And she texted me and said, Todd, I've got COVID. I'm trying not to exacerbate anything that Monty already has with this. I don't know all the details, but I'd like to keep some distance for a week or so. And she said, do you have anyone that could help? And, and so, you know, we all try to balance like how do we ma- navigate this? And so I just called some folks who I knew had COVID, who probably, and I'm not speaking here medically, I'm just speaking what I thought. Don't email me, okay? Um, like, they're probably immune. And if they're not immune, they're probably courageous. So I just texted them, hey, man, Carol needs help. She, Monty's on the feeding tube. She can't really get that close. Could you help? And I had uh, five or six of our members Julie's one of them, Tanner, Molly, Chris Parley, and there may be some more, I'm I'm forgetting all their names, just jump in and say, yeah, we'll go over. And for multiple times a day, they'd go over there, sit with him, get his feedings ready, and just help care. I love those kinds of good works, don't you? Um, We have a lady in our church who every single Sunday... She comes to one service, and then she serves the remaining two in our children's ministry. I mean, every Sunday. And she's been doing this for years. And this doesn't include other things that she does throughout the week. Now, we call on people to be twofers without apology. Like, try to attend a service and serve a service. It's one of the ways that we can really um, serve each other well. But she's about the only threefer I know, okay? (laughs) I don't think I know another threefer. But every week, I'm not just talking about once a month. She's not filling a rotation every single week. She pretty much says from 7.30 to 12.30, I'll be there. Now, we have musicians and camera folks who do that. Praise God. I do think it's a little out of the ordinary for someone to say every single week. And She's not on staff. She's not paid a thing. She just voluntarily says, man, here's some good works I can do. I love that about her. Speaking of our camera guys and our musicians, you know, there, there are some notations there. When COVID struck and we decided we wanted to kind of upgrade all of our digital online presence, uh, we had an individual who financially gave to cover the large majority of that. That was a good work I was thankful for. But not only that, we had a lot of adults and a lot of our high schoolers stepped up to kind of man the cameras, uh, to actually man the uh, additional feed that was going out to increase the quality of the sound. A number of things that are way above my head Our team knew what to do, and they recruited volunteers, and folks are stepping up to do that. Again, just good works. There's also many of you, and I'm one of these as well. There's good works you do in our community. I'm part of a group uh, that meets about once or so a month, and I just have a role in that as a volunteer. It's not connected to our church, but it's a way to help our community. I serve on a few boards in the same fashion. Some of you do that as well. These are all just good works that, that we're doing, that people are doing, that showcase God's work. That's that's all that is. So that's just a window into kind of how it looks. But hear this well, church. It's effective and helpful when that happens with one person. I agree with that. I'm not minimizing that at all. And wherever that is on the spectrum, I praise God for that good work. But do you realize that when one good work is like three good works and then ten good works, or let's take our church, When, when hundreds of people are involved in good works, that showcase God's work, that's that's much more powerful than just one person in a solitary way doing something. Suddenly you, you become a collective, shining, very bright, glaring example of God's work in a community. And I think that's kind of what I'm nudging you towards today. I'm complimenting you and I'm praising God for his grace in letting us do good works. But I'm trying to also get you to see this, that when all of us Board the ship of what should be normal, good works. We should be walking in them. And when that's collective, when it's church-wide, what a powerful statement to our community. What a powerful statement to each other. In those moments, we get greater gospel depth among our church and greater gospel declaration among our community. Good works are one of the ways we do that. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your, say it, church, good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. This is why he's made you a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away. We're not walking as dead rebels in sin anymore. We're walking in good works as living saints. All old things are, become, are, are passing away. All things are becoming new. And so Titus would say to us, be zealous for good works, Titus two fourteen. So those windows I've given you, keep it up. But church, can more of us rally to the call of Ephesians 2.10 so that it's not just a a periodic bright spot, but it's an entire church as an army of, of beautiful lights shining brilliantly to God's grace and to his work because we are committed to good works. Now that's some anecdotal, can I use the word evidence? That's, that's a window to which you see good, good works, which is really the point of Ephesians 2 10b primarily. Let me share with you that I think that's also an area that we need to grow in. I think this is an opportunity for growth at First Family. It may be that it's been that way for years, I don't think so personally. I think we've had a really good run at a highly engaged serving church. I think post-pandemic, though we've returned pretty well by God's grace, our serving teams have been a little slower in that. So I'm not sure I know all the reasons why, but I kind of want to lay out for you maybe some numerical data to help you see that this is an area that we need to grow in. I'm not judging anyone's motives. I'm not trying to Uh, corner you and poke you in the chest in a weird way. I am trying to pastorally lead you and even organizationally lead you to realize, hey, the numbers pretty much speak for themselves. There is an area for growth here. So can I just share some numerical data with you that might help you process this verse and how it can play out in your life? In late 2020, we surveyed all of our regular attenders and members through an email. We asked for five minutes and six questions. One of those questions was this, how often do you serve on a team? Out of the 203 people who responded to the survey in general, only 116 of them responded to that question. So can I just round off and say about half, is that okay? We sent it about 200, about half responded to that question and out of the respondents to that question, only half said weekly. Now I'm not minimizing those who serve monthly or quarterly, I'm not trying to minimize that, but I want you to hear this just factually. Based on that survey, and I'm sure there's other numbers that could change the one we have, I agree with that, but just based on the survey, out of 200 folks who responded, only 60 said they're serving in a weekly basis, and my opinion is, and I'm pretty honest with you about opinions, this is just an opinion, my opinion is organizationally we're gonna need more than 60 to make sure that we have really good gospel depth and really good gospel declaration. All right, that's just an opinion. I think I can back it up numerically, but you need you need a lot of folks with oars in their hand rowing the boat. You do, week in and week out. Now, is that saying that we only have 60? No, there's probably more than 60. There's hundreds who didn't answer the survey, Um, so it's probably more. But I'm just giving you the raw data that, from what we can tell, from the 116 who answered that question, only 60 said I'm serving weekly. And I just want to kind of put the call out. I think. Some of you could do more. I think I could do more. To serve, not just quarterly or randomly or when it's convenient, but regularly. And by regularly, would you consider serving weekly? Let me drill down a little more. One of the questions on there was, do you serve on a ministry team? We had 151 folks respond to that out of the 203 respondents. Out of the 151, the largest group of respondents, 31%, their answer was, no, I'm not on a ministry team. So that equates to about 47 people. So there were other percentages that said, yes, I'm on a team or I'm on two teams. So that's good news. But I thought it was intriguing and maybe a little bit concerning that the largest group who answered that question said, I'm not on a ministry team at all. And here's why I find that concerning, because serving on a team is actually one of the three core elements of our, culture, of our church culture here. In fact, our church culture revolves around three things. I want you to say them with me. Ready? We celebrate, grow, and serve. Let's expand that, can we? We celebrate the gospel, we grow in community, and we serve the, but let's expand that even more, because from day one, we've also said this. We celebrate the gospel at a weekend service. We grow in community in a small group, and we serve the mission on a team, a ministry team. So when 47 people say, hey, I'm I'm part of this, I'm getting the email, I'm I'm a regular attender, a member, and I'm taking the survey, but I'm not on a team, either that's on us or them. Somewhere there's a missing, we're we're missing, uh, you know, we're not hitting on all cylinders in that situation. Wouldn't you agree with that? I'm not trying to pass blame, or not sorry to say I don't... Uh, judge unnecessarily, but there's a missed opportunity there. That there's at least, based on that survey, 47 people who are like two-thirds in. (laughs) So organizationally, I want to say today, and pastorally, I think there's an opportunity for growth there. I think among our church, we could see progress in that area of good works where even if they say, well, I can't serve weekly, but yes, I will get on a team and experience the camaraderie and unity of serving collectively towards one mission and one aim. That's a win for that person. It's a win for First Family. Let me drill down just even a little more. And if you've been uncomfortable already, prepare. Next month is March. It begins in one day, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Our family ministry team told me this week that for the month of March, they have 61 essential opportunities available. In other words, there are 61 places that are essential to that operation to go out this door and turn to the right, K, uh, excuse me, birth through fifth grade. There's 61 opportunities that are essential for that ministry to really run effectively for our children in those ages for the month of March. Now... Let me be honest with you. I think there are people in times in which, and Becky shared that, you know, they kind of fill up the week of. Some of those are people who plan to work and don't sign up to the last minute. Others are just like, hey, I see a need, I'll, I'll step in. But my opinion, again, capital O here, my opinion is that in a church of hundreds of people, I would tend to think organizationally, and even just from a pastoral perspective, we could have... 61 opportunities that are essential taken care of before we get to the actual month. Now, I don't think that's a whole lot to ask for. So I'm kind of putting this out to you this morning. There's 61 essential opportunities just next door that I think could be reduced by at least 47. Are you tracking with me? Am I being too personal with you? Am I hitting you too hard? Now, you say, well, Todd, March has five weeks. Okay, you're right. So let's take out the fifth week. Based on the chart I received, there's 41 essential opportunities. So whoever the 47 are, let's solve it today, can we? (laughs) Right? No, in all seriousness, there are opportunities for our church to grow here. Now, I want to add to that this. There are an additional 18 preferred opportunities in the children's ministry during the month of March. A preferred opportunity is one in which, hey, this environment would be great, but we can get along without it. We don't have that with the 61 for the next five weeks. We've got 18 that we could, you know, it'd be like whipped cream. So I'm just kind of bringing this to you. I can't solve it on my own. I can do my part. Julie can do her part. But organizationally, as one of your leaders and as your probably primary pulpit leader, I want to come to you pastorally. And honestly and transparently say to you, uh, can we solve this dilemma? I don't think it's the heartbeat of anyone here. I don't think it's the general trajectory of our church or how we've operated. But I think in post-pandemic times, it appears we've been really excited to regather but perhaps slow at regathering for good works, at least within the framework of official kind of routine serving opportunities. I'm not discounting other opportunities or things you've done outside of these walls. Hallelujah. Speaking of that, by the way, we have some opportunities outside of our walls coming up. At the end of April, uh, we're going to be involved in what we call deployment week. We're asking every single small group to do something outside of this church in our community that really resounds to God's glory, that loves people, that shows Christ's love, that shares him with others. Now, we're going to share more with you in the coming weeks at our fireside chats, especially about how that's going to roll out. But it's just our way of trying to kind of build some runways for you to say, hey, let's be involved in good works. We've got opportunities here. We've got opportunities out there. And our vision must be larger than just this room. Sometimes a church thinks, well, our vision is to fill up the room. I don't think our vision is to fill up the room. Our vision is to reach a city to be a testimony and example to our metro area, to get the gospel to the nations who have yet to even hear the name of Christ. That's our vision because that's Christ's command. So church, can we think larger and can we embrace the fact that we can probably do more than one thing? That means you can as well. And if you're just serving randomly and periodically, would you consider serving weekly? If you're not serving at all, would you consider just embracing a life of good works? Yes, outside the church, but also within the church. And can we see how this would play out in March by making sure that those 61 essential opportunities, man, we're going to take care of those. That's really what I'm calling us to today, is a life of good works. As I processed this this week and thought about these different challenges and calls to action I wanted to share with you, my mind went back to raising kids. And Julie and I, we thoroughly enjoyed our time when, we, when our kids were home. We're almost empty nesters. Brooke graduates this April, I think, or this May. And so we'll be officially done. We're going to throw a party for Brooke and one for us. So we're excited about that. No, in all seriousness, we, uh, we really enjoyed our child-raising years. And One of the things that we did as a family is we, we made a big deal about family dinner. That's just something we thought would help bring a centering time to each day. And admittedly, there are seasons, you know, there are certain sports seasons, there's when you have a newborn, some of those things shift around, you're not perfect at it. But I would say if you were to ask our children, they'd probably say to you, in general, family dinner was a big deal. Uh, we'd spend a lot of time there, we'd ask a lot of questions, hey, what's your high point, what's your low point, you know, you're good and bad, those work really well for little kids. And we'd just linger a lot because we felt like it was a centering element to the day, we also did this. We would often bring in the kids prior to the meal. We didn't just ring the dinner bell and say, hey, time to eat. Come fill your bellies. We would often say, hey, can you help set the table? And so, you know, someone would be getting the plates or the napkins. And, and admittedly, we didn't get the two-year-old to get the knives. You know, that wasn't happening, okay? And so there were seasons and, and ups and downs. But for the most part, a lot of times, everyone chipped in a little before, we ate together and then we chipped in afterwards. Hey, can you clean up? Can you grab the plates, put it in the dishwasher, and you get the trash? And, and we just used it as a, as a time to really enjoy everyone leaning in to help everyone be well fed. Because in all actuality, though Julie handled most of all the prep and the cooking, uh, we were all chipping in. So we ate together and then it was all sudden we had a hand in this meal that fed our family. And I thought about that in relation to our current situation. Kind of what I'm calling on us today. I believe all of you love to eat at the buffet. I love that. I mean, God's word is a, a delightful, uh, just, it's, it's I, we can never get enough of this, amen. But accompanying this, there's other work before and after the meal. And I'm asking you, don't just come when you hear the dinner bill. I'm asking, can you can you get in the kitchen with us before and after? And could you grab some plates and help set the table? Could you maybe take the trash out? Many of you are doing great at that. There's a lot of folks here who are new in the last three to six months. I would encourage you, now's the time to jump in and say, where can I begin to serve? I want like to call on our online audience, those who are watching, and you've been waiting for the right time to return. I would say to you, perhaps now is the right time to return. I don't know all the reasons you're home still. There are many who have to be, but there are many who don't have to be. And I would challenge you to make your return soon, not just to regather, but return to serve with good works. And let's watch the Lord raise up an army of bright lights who are showcasing His work in a time when a lot of people are fearful and scared. What if we could interact relationally and powerfully, intimately and closely with those who have needs without fear? What a testimony to God's work in our life. So I'm calling on you. Yes. Let's eat together. But can we all participate in helping the meal go well for our whole church? That's what I'm calling on you today. And I believe that is the life that God calls us to based on Ephesians 2.10. That God has created and ordained you in, uh, in Christ to do these very works that he owns as well. And this is the way he wants us to walk. Well, lest I end... On that note, and you think that I'm all about your work, let me just add this one final note. All of that's only possible because of God's work. And I will not be a moralistic, do better preacher. I'm for, uh, I'm for engagement. I'm not against busyness. I'm for thorough activity. I think we can do more than we can ever imagine. I'm for that. But none of you have the power to live this way on your own. You don't. I don't. I will wear out and you will too. We need God's work in us first. So, to be faithful to the text, I remind you, verse 10b, which calls you to live differently through good works, follows nine and a half verses of God's work. Amen, church? So, will you rest in what God has done for you and then just in a relaxing way, just give your life away for his purposes? And say, God, when opportunities come, I'll serve. I'll do some good works. And out of the joy of your heart, let us walk in the good works for which God has created us in Christ Jesus to do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.